Hello, I'm Michael Bott. And I'm Rupert Soskin. And this is the Standing With Stones podcast. Ten years ago, we made an epic documentary about the Standing Stones, Stone Circles and other ancient monuments of the British Isles. And now the Stones are calling us back. And we'd like to share our passion and fascination with the ancient past in this series of podcasts. Hope you enjoy it. In this, the very first episode, we'd like to answer the most asked question raised by our film. Is the stone in the chamber of Brinkethley the the fossil tree trunk? And we feel that there's a need to pay attention to a place we nearly passed through when we made the film. A Stonehenge. Just what has been happening there in the last ten years. So, welcome to episode one of the Standing With Stones podcast. Now, before we get underway, we'd like to say a very big thank you. This would not be happening now if it weren't for you. And we're talking about you, the fans, a wonderful group of people who not only bought and enjoyed our film, but over the past 10 years since its release, have continued to support us and engage with us via Facebook and elsewhere even when it might have seemed that Rupert and I had disappeared off to do other things. We know there has always been a demand for us to do something more, uh, to perhaps produce another film with more scope. And after having found that making films about rocks in fields is actually quite an expensive indulgence, we've not been able to see a way forward. After the epic investment of time and money that Standing With Stones was, we just couldn't justify it financially. However, now we have crowdfunding, and this, dear listeners, is Rupert and me dipping our toes in the potential that that might bring. Kickstarter, Indiegogo, as you probably know, are crowdfunding platforms for one-off projects. Patreon, on the other hand, is a crowdfunding platform for artists, musicians and creators who do ongoing work that gives fans the chance to support their work by becoming a patron enabling the continuation of that work by donating a monthly subscription. This podcast will remain free and available to all, but by making a donation through Patreon of as little as a dollar a month, that's 71p on this side of the Atlantic, you'll also receive our undying gratitude as well as access to a whole range of exclusive goodies that will be unavailable to non-patrons. So this is an appeal to help us carry on producing this podcast and all sorts of other megalithic content, as well as get to the point when we can make another Standing With Stones film. Please go to patreon.com forward slash standing with stones. Have a look at what's on offer and please become one of our patrons. There's a range of subscription levels to choose from with some exciting rewards and perks on offer and we hope you'll find a level that suits you and that will help us to produce a great podcast, interviews, live broadcasts, videos, and ultimately, perhaps, another film. And now, on with the show. And that means we kick off the show with that wonderful oxymoron of prehistoric news, by which we mean anything... (laughs) 
anything that's caught our eye recently that changes or illuminates our understanding of our Neolithic and Bronze Age ancestors. Rupert, what have we got? Well, yeah, I'll tell you what we've got, and I don't know that it adds to our understanding at all. Um, <laughs> there's a wonderful discovery in Sweden uh, that uh, they've found a place actually at the bottom of a lake, but uh, but back in the day it wouldn't have been. Uh, this is 8,000 years old, and they found heads on spikes. Um, oh, lovely. It's gorgeous. And the fascinating thing is that, you know, our association with, you know, say medieval England, and we imagine uh, people's, uh, people having their heads cut off and being stuck on spikes to uh, uh, show everybody else what might come of them if they don't behave themselves. Uh, but actually these were, uh, these appear to be uh, revered uh, um, members of, uh, of the community. This was actually a, a display of, uh, I don't even know how best to articulate that, um, should have practised this. Sorry, folks. Um, this was um, honouring uh, the dead in a, in a way of keeping them on display. There's, there, there seems to be uh, some secondary burial involved, so, you know, where they oh. used to let bodies rot down a bit before they did uh, anything more final with them. They did, did a bit of excarnation. Indeed they did. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was there's a family. There, there were injuries, so the uh, men and women who'd been beaten around the head but not killed by uh, that. There was uh, healing uh, in the, the, you know, in the skull injuries. There was healing around that. And, yeah, but that, that's, that's the point, isn't it, that they haven't been um, um, killed um, in order to be put on display. Um, no, indeed. This no, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and uh, there was a, a tiny baby uh, skeleton uh, with them. So that it's so small, they reckon that that di uh, it was probably in childbirth or or just afterwards. Yeah. And we know that it was uh, an honouring thing because the uh, the bodies were surrounded by. Uh, bones and other artifacts of animals so there were bears and boars and deer yeah, and, okay. um and, as you as do, you do. Yeah. Uh, a fascinating discovery so uh, we will flag the links up uh, uh, on the page yeah. so people interested in whatever we um you know uh, bring up you know you can follow those links and, and read more about them but yeah heads on spikes yeah, they couldn't be ignored no, can you remember the name of the site? Ooh, it's in it's, Sweden. Uh, Canal yeah. Jordan. Um, yeah. It, oh yeah, called, yeah. Canal Jordan. Canal Jordan. Yeah. Forgive my pronunciation. This is probably wrong. Um, okay, so probably much more to be said on that. Um, to be found out about that if you follow the uh, uh, follow the link. Um, uh, K a n a l j o. R D E N. If you want to do your own uh, Google search on that, excellent. Uh, heads on spikes. There you go. Over to you. What have you got? Yeah. Um, what have I got? Well, as we've been setting up um, this podcast and generally gearing up, standing with stones again on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, um, it seems quite a few more people have come across us. And one of these persons being one. Uh, Toby Angel. Now, Toby Angel turns out to be uh, one of the founders of a company called Sacred Stones. And what Sacred Stones, the company, are doing, they're a commercial company, they're building, would you believe, 
modern modern long barrows for people to inter their loved ones, the, the, um, the ashes of their loved ones in urns and so on and so forth, inside these uh, yeah, long barrows. Exciting. And they're really, I know, they're, they are really quite something. They, they're beautiful to look at from the outside, uh, as you'd expect. Actually, they're particularly, one particularly, reminds me of Bella's oh, Night. Right. Um, you know that kind of Teletubby uh, <laughs> look, but but uh, you know that they're, they're looking as you'd expect to uh, from the outside, and on the inside they uh, they've incorporated many uh, chambers. You know these are these are multi-chambered, but more niche, aren't they? They're not um, they're not large chambers. Yeah, niche um, for, niche niches, yes. That, that, yeah. That, niches for, for ashes. So, yeah, it's an, a modern alternative interment service. Um, but um, I thought it was quite extraordinary. It's lovely. If you're, if you're not uh, a follower of any particular religion or whatever, then maybe that's a, a really nice thing to be able to do with, uh, uh, with departed loved ones. Yeah. I mean, on the face of it, it may seem a bit naff, but actually having spoken to them and seen what they're doing, they're really taking mm. care um, and they're very excited about the difference it makes for people who have lost loved ones. And it seems that the act of interring in a long barrow, being close to the earth, makes it a far more personal experience mm. for them. That the relationship, the process of of interring um, uh, their relatives uh, is a far more profound experience than it would have been in a an orthodox um uh, burial or uh, uh, otherwise, um, so I, it's it's worth, just worth noting because I think it informs to a certain extent how we can view people's profound relationship to the dead. You know the the, the profound relationship to the dead that our mm. ancestors have. If modern day people are having much more profound reactions and uh, involvement. Um, with the process through um, burial mm. at a long barrow. Hopefully we can get um, some of them on uh, the podcast later and, and delve a bit deeper into that. So that was that. Was that. We'll put, again, we'll put the link in the, um, uh, in, in the show notes. So, yeah. More, Rupert. What have you got? Uh, yes, I'll tell you. This one is really exciting for me. They have found over in uh, – it's Western Armenia, so east of Turkey, basically – they have found an 8,000-year-old settlement. And the reason I find this so exciting is because we have this chasm, this gulf of time between Gebekli Tepe over there, which is like 10, 11, 12,000 years old, and then, you know, what the hell happened between then and our massive monument building, you know, Giza Plateau, you're still talking about five, 6,000 years ago, um, ancient Greeks or, you know, Mesopotamia, whichever civilization you care to look at or our own megalithic building five, 6,000 years ago, you know, that what on earth happened in between? So a, uh, a settlement that dates to 8,000 years ago is significant. It's a bridge, you know, that we're, we're gradually filling in some of these blanks. And yeah. Uh, yeah. The, uh, the, the name of the place is um, Akashan. Now, again, sorry, apologies if that's an appalling pronunciation, but that's broadly a cash <laughs> in eastern Armenia, sorry, western Armenia. 
Um, and uh, and a good one to uh, you know, I recommend anybody to uh, have a look at that and uh, follow up on developments there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure we can expand upon these kind of subjects uh, as we go on in our, our podcast. But this is the wonderful thing. I hope we can at some point get some kind of timeline going. Um, I know it's a, a timeline is a visual mm -hmm. thing, but we can explore, you know, what came first, what came when, what came where, you know, so that if anything, if things link up, then we can, you know, speculate about the links. Yeah, absolutely. And really fascinating to see what happened concurrently. You know, it's quite surprising, really, uh, the, the things that, uh, that were happening in Europe as opposed to the Middle East, say, uh, at different times. We, we, we must do that, yes. Watch this space, folks. Yeah, we'll do that. Absolutely. And you. And there's one more thing we've got uh, from prehistoric news. And this time, I believe you're about to push us back. Yes. Back, back, <laughs> back. <laughs> way back in way time. Back. Yeah, this is quite exciting for a completely yeah. different reason. Uh, they have found it in northern Israel. They've found the oldest modern human fossil. Oh, my and, goodness. Uh, the reason that this is exciting is because they can <laughs> date... It's a jawbone, basically, and uh, and they can date this to... It's nearly 200,000 years old. Ooh. And the exciting thing about it is because they found it in northern Israel, and that basically... Uh, flies in the face of what we thought were the migration routes out of Africa. This actually puts modern man coming out of Africa about 50,000 years, 40, 50,000 years earlier than expected. So, uh, yes, it's, it, it's wonderful. Every time you push these things back, you could just love it. Uh, lots to talk about there. But again, um, I will put the link um, down in, in the notes um, so that you can investigate. Are there any other details that people might want uh, that, that uh, are available that so people can do a Google search on that? Um, just just Google oldest known human fossil. You'll get something. Oh, really? um, yeah. yeah, I actually can't remember the name of the other than the fact that it, I, I know it was northern Israel. Can't remember the name of the place. Yeah. Um, should have made okay. notes. Note to self, make more notes. So um, that's it. No more prehistoric news on... There's tons more news, but we haven't got time. I know, I know. <laughs> we must press on. <laughs> Visiting ancient monuments is often a very personal experience especially as the vast majority of them are seldom or rarely visited by large numbers of people. So when, during the filming of Standing With Stones, we found ourselves, Rupert and I, alone in the central chamber of Brinkethley V, there was time to contemplate properly what was there in front of our eyes. Now, we had... Uh, um, already been filming for a week or 10 days. I think we'd been travelling through uh, Wales. Uh, there we were, on Anglesey, in a tomb, in a field, <laughs> uh, with the whole of Ireland ahead of us. We were due to um, sail from Holyhead to Dublin, I think, the, the, the next day. So what happened, Rupert, in that moment uh, of solitude <laughs> and contemplation <laughs> that so disturbed us. <laughs> that so disturbed us and became the most contentious thing to come out of the entire film. Um, well, it was my first time that you'd been there once before, hadn't you? 
I had, yeah. And this was my first time. So all I had to go on was everything that I had ever read in any number of books, including Aubrey Burr. Yeah. Um, and the the thing that I was looking forward to seeing was this carefully dressed pillar of stone in the burial chamber. Mm. Everybody had referred to it as a carefully dressed pillar of stone. Now, in archaeological terms, carefully dressed means that it was cut to be that shape. And the thing that slapped me straight in the face when I walked in to see this thing was that that wasn't cut at all. That was a, a naturally cylindrical woody textured thing. The only thing that made any sense to me was that it was a petrified tree trunk. Um, and so th there's there's me looking at or thinking of all the things that I had ever read and knowing in an instant that they were all utterly wrong. It was as if somebody somewhere had said something and everybody else had just copied it without ever bothering to check. Um, yeah, I, ca I can actually remember the look of shock and horror in your eyes in your own disbelief at the way your brain was working <laughs> at this, uh, you know, uh, what was uh, in front in front of your eyes. And, you know, my experience, of course, was, you know, once you'd pointed out that this looked like a, a fossilised tree trunk, or at least that the surface textures were pretty well identical to what you'd expect the surface of a, uh, a, a piece of wood, a, a trunk of a tree might look like. I, I couldn't unsee it. Mm. That was the thing. It was so bleeding obvious. Well, the, the uh, thing that, the that, thing that made it uh, such a, I was going to say something rude, uh, the, the thing that made it so disturbing uh, for me was not the fact that it was just a fossil tree trunk, but the fact that there were cut marks in yeah. it. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, it looked as if uh, there were axe marks or, or, mm. or whatever. Uh, and and to, and to be clear, if you haven't actually been there, what I'd like to point out to folk is that unless you've been in that chamber and looked at that pillar with your own eyes and had the 3D experience of being there, it's very difficult to convey um, how precise those cut marks are. I can't, don't really think you can even see it in a, in a photograph. Um, but when you're there and inches away from it, those cut marks are, are so sharp. They look like they've been cut with a, a, a diamond, something that mm. would be impossible to do um, after the fact, you know, with a, a, any other implement on that stone. Uh, yeah, I mean, that was, that was if, it, if it was worked, if it was yeah. tree trunks that had been cut, yeah. then when was it cut? Because it was clearly a petrified uh, fossil tree trunk. So, you know, I went into all the... Uh, uh, you know, agonizings of how old could it have been? How quickly well, could it have Well, you did agonize. I have this image in my head. If not, we if we don't even have a photograph of it of you actually on the phone from yeah, I was from the from the chamber of Brinkethley the to you phoned a friend. I did phone a friend. <laughs> I did phone a friend to see if they could uh, look up all sorts of yeah. um, uh, all sorts of questions that I had about how quickly things could petrify under given uh, certain circumstances, you know. Um, but, um, but yes, I mean, you know, the thing is that we had, uh, in fact, even today, I still get emails from people asking, uh, is there any news on the fossil tree trunk? And actually, the, the mystery was solved a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and I did 
uh, I did blog about that, but obviously not everybody gets to see a blog. So I, as I said, I'm still getting emails all the time. Uh, people asking. Yeah, well, hence we're uh, using this opportunity to, to clear that up. And, make sure, and, uh, and what, what happened was I uh, was contacted out of the blue by Dr. Fionn Reynolds from Cardiff University, I think she's at. And Fionn had been at Brinkethley Lee uh, just a couple of days before with a geologist whose name <laughs> she couldn't remember, which is a shame because I can't even uh, thank the man because I don't know who he is. But uh, this chap had recognised it as blue schist. Um, and uh, so blue schist, it's a rock. Uh, and the thing is that blue schist is only formed in the most unusual circumstances. And this is in the subduction zones of tectonic plates. So when one plate is sliding under another, if you imagine what can happen to uh, to minerals in in or rocks in in that situation, that that you've got this rolling on and it all happens fairly quickly, and the thing is that it happens at relatively cool temperatures. So the, the reason that you don't get completely melted rock like you would with you know with a, a say a, a granite or any other igneous rock. Um, is that it's cold. You're, these these um, temperatures are two two hundred to four hundred degrees centigrade. You know, you you, you cook your chicken <laughs> at these <laughs> sorts of temperatures. Uh, so so basically, it it's where the plates are actually uh, creating this rolling effect and pushing the rock back up to the surface fairly rapidly. So it's almost like forming a stick of seaside rock. And so that entirely explains why the pillar within the uh, within the burial chamber, uh, why the pillar can be uh, cylindrical, and mm. uh, the, the textures that you get on it. Okay, they are very very woody textures. There's no getting mm. around that. But you can see if it's blue schist, you can see how it formed that way. So you know it was lovely to have that finally explained yeah. and one of yeah. those situations where i was very relieved to be wrong <laughs> yeah i mean we'd all love sensationalist things to be true um but really this isn't a disappointing result no, no, uh, not, at no. all it, it all fits in <laughs> you know n nicely um but I, i'm so glad you know that we've actually pointed out that if even if it isn't a fossilized tree trunk it Blooming well looks like one, and indeed, which is that, significant not only for us, but of course for the, uh, uh, those that originally found the piece. You, you know, dug it up, whatever, transported it there, and put it in that chamber. Yeah, it, it would have been utterly magical to them. They would have found what looked to them like a tree trunk, but it was made of stone in uh, you know, something from between the two worlds, if you like, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you can, yeah, you can quite understand why it took a special place for that. Yeah, it, it should be pointed out as well that um, the uh, rock comes from a nearby outcrop on Anglesey, which is actually quite a rare outcrop of this. Well, mm. blue schist itself is pretty rare, but um, yes, uh, the particular outcrop on Anglesey, I believe, is, is, is quite special. Um, the, the funny thing is, you know, that um, I would have thought that bearing in mind that it's formed in those conditions, you'd think that you'd find more cylinders of it. Yeah. 
mm. and you don't. So it that that makes it all the more rare and all the more uh, understandable why they thought it was you know, something significantly magical. Well, I think it's fair to. Uh, I, I don't like to assume, but I think in this instance you can <laughs> fairly assume that uh, that they would have thought it was quite magical. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, we hope that uh, clears um, Brinkethley the up for everybody and and uh, and settles the matter in a in a happy way for all of those concerned. Fingers crossed. And, and if all, it doesn't, do let us know. That's right. We can all get a good night's sleep now. <laughs> Main topic, as we said at the beginning, Stonehenge. Um, now, the thing was, we were we were very dismissive of it in Standing with Stones, uh, and that was quite deliberate, really, because I mean, my main thing about Stonehenge was that if you ask, you, you go and ask ten thousand people in Britain to name a prehistoric site, and probably nine and a half thousand of them are going to say Stonehenge. It's just the only site that everybody seems to know. And our point in Standing With Stones was to show everybody what else was out there. The thing is, we were so dismissive of it, and yet it is such a vastly important place that we thought within this first episode, we really ought to redress that um, that apparent dismissive uh, behaviour. So uh, yeah, I mean, when we when we made the film, Stonehenge was very much about what visitors might well be missing mm. when they go to the site, you know, um, uh, you know, and it was very much our perception when we were thinking about what to say about Stonehenge in the film that it was more um, uh, significant as an incredibly large and complicated community rather than a single monument. Absolutely. Uh, and in fact, you, you, well, you, Mike, did all the CGI uh, in the film, which uh, showed a lot of the complexity surrounding the site. But that is the thing, that people go and see this, okay, it's a vastly impressive stone circle, but the uh, the site as a whole, going right across, um, you know, to Avebury, all the way around Stonehenge Wood, Henge Lark Hill, yeah. all the way around there, vastly complex array of monuments and they've just been turning up more and more and more and i commented in the film that you know as far as i'm concerned i still feel the same today that this part of wiltshire was must have been the capital of megalithic britain i'm i feel quite certain about that um and yeah, yeah it's still extraordinary what is turning up and that's why it's so important that we go through some of these some of these wonderful things uh, now um yeah to redress the balance a bit i think as as you said so um i i'm personally i don't think i've been you know keeping completely on the ball as to what's been happening at stonehenge but am i right in thinking that um you know the perspective on stonehenge has shifted uh, in the mainstream um very much so in the last few years and that the, that shift has been as a result of the work done by the Riverside Project? Uh, well, yeah, the Riverside Project, um, funnily enough, the Riverside Project was still uh, very much, uh, you know, in swing when, when we were filming. Uh, yeah. It kicked off uh, Mike Parker Pearson. I mean, all hail. Uh, that man is, uh, mm -hmm. we, should, we should all call him Mr Stonehenge, really. 
Um, but he was uh, he was really the, uh, the the main man in all of that, and it it ran from two thousand and three. It ran and finished in I think it was finished in two thousand and nine. But uh, but they were uncovering all sorts of uh, stuff uh, around. Uh, well, I'm still going to call it the Wiltshire City. Um, yeah. And uh, a number of things have come out of this. And and for me, one of the most significant is if you go back quite some years now, it was uh, Professor Tim Darvill, one of my... Uh, <laughs> One of my personal heroes, archaeologically. <laughs> now, Tim was the one who and showing uh, uh, didn't he not write the forward? To he did write the forward the book? to the book. Standing with Stones. Yes, yeah, yeah. bless him, he did. Um, now, Tim was the was the guy who who showed categorically that the blue stones at Stonehenge came from Priscelli. And what's happened more recently in? Uh, uh, in work coming from this is that they have actually found the quarries where the stones were worked, and yeah. uh, and this is just wonderful. You can see the chisel marks. They hammered in wooden uh, wedges and let the rain expand those wooden wedges to split the stones. There are uh, ramps and causeways where they were clearly it, it just this must have been a massive, almost factory where they were, um, you know, heaving uh, stones off and carting them away on on sledges. It's a, f- a marvelous discovery, and um, yes, and I'm so glad. You know, that when we, when we were standing there with uh, the Priscilla Hills in sight, <laughs> I can't remember the name of the site that we're actually standing on. Do you know what? I'm and, ashamed uh, to say. I you don't said. Either. No, you, you you said so confidently to camera. You, you know the blue stones at Stonehenge; <laughs> they came from up there. What were they thinking? Now, this was before. What were they? <laughs> that's right. But that was before um, Tim Darville had actually nailed it on the head. At that time, it was very much you know a choice you made whether to believe the uh, St- the uh, Salisbury Plain Sarsen yeah, theory, yeah, yeah. or uh, to uh, no, what am I talking about? Salisbury Plain that they came from, you know, that they were they came locally, mm. or that they came all the way from the, the Priscelli Hills. Yes. Uh, yeah. and um, yeah, there was a lot of vociferous argumentation going on. There was, um, there was. So it's very, very good that uh, that has been nailed one way, um, you know, with certainty one way. I think one of the things that also needs to come out of this is. Uh, our acceptance that, um, put it another way, we have become, with every passing century, as an animal, we have become progressively more and more lazy. And we want everything to be done as quickly as possible. And we want everything to be done as inexpensively as possible. And we want everything to be as easy as possible. Whereas you go back in time, you know, so go past the period of cathedral building or, or whatever, where it was the, the work itself was what mattered. And so going back, you know, the fact that it was an enormous amount of effort to move a large piece of stone 100 miles, well, so what? We can do it. Let's do it. Uh, it's only yeah. our modern mm-hmm. mindset that says, ma, they can't have done that. Of course they can. Of course they could. 
Um, and and the fact that we've because we couldn't be bothered. Yeah, but that's it exactly. And <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, well, yeah, I have so many uh, kind of glib concepts about uh, about how. Uh, man would have done certain ridiculous things back then because they were possible. It's only us now who feel that, uh, you know, you, you wouldn't bother to do that. Yes, you would. Yeah. You know. So, mm. yes, Bluestone's moving uh, to Stonehenge. Uh, I think an absolutely wonderful discovery. Um, yeah. Terrific. Terrific work, yeah. you know. I mean, really, hats off to... Uh, Parker Pearson and hats, all. Hats yes, off indeed. For the perseverance. Yeah. Uh, what else has come to Well, uh, come another to of the marvellous ones is uh, that uh, near Lark Hill they have uh, – well, no, it's Cat's Brain, actually, that's, um, which is – Cat's Brain is near Lark Hill. Um, they have found a new – if that is the right adjective – they have found another <laughs> a new long barrow, which <laughs> completely uh, ploughed to the ground um, and – you know, again, modern technology. This only uh, became this was only discovered because of uh, aerial reconnaissance. I don't know if it was from a plane or if yeah. it was from a drone, <laughs> but um, but the markings were found or were spotted in a field, and uh, it's uh, it's a substantial long barrow has been found uh, at Cat's Brain. So, uh, given that this is a new find, does that mean uh, that uh, we can all be excited about new archaeology from the site? Well, I hope so. Uh, it, it, the thing is, it's, it's been so um, flattened. It's been flattened for a very long time, and this was only it was only found because of aerial photographs showing crop markings. You know the way so much stuff is found these days, with particularly yeah. with drones and stuff. That you know you see crop markings that reveal all sorts of uh, underlying archaeology. Um, who knows what's in there? They they are excavating it, so fingers crossed. But I interesting that uh, if you imagine the shape that it's uh, it's got two it's described as two huge banana shaped ditches flanking the outline of a trapezoidal timber structure that was once covered with earth. Um, yeah. No, it's long. It's uh, it, it's over 19 metres long and over 10 metres wide. Uh, and typically... That's quite a lot, isn't it? That is quite big. a lot. It's big. And it tapers yeah, to yeah. six metres at the back. So, um, you know, it, it was a, a, a substantial structure and uh, i can't off the top of my head remember how big west kennet is it's nothing like as big as west i was kennet, just about to say but uh, but nevertheless it's uh, you know that's a stonking piece of architecture really um yeah it, it's you see i mean it, it, all this stuff they only so this they found last year the last few years they've been tipping up more and more stuff which it always makes me choke when they say they've found another temple when I just want to hit people. I really do. <laughs> just I think we're probably going to hear you say that quite a lot. Yes, it will, it will months, never go years. away. This <laughs> eternal <laughs> presumption that it has to be religious. In fact, um, uh, I, I, I heard... I'm not. Even, I'm not going to name names because people do wonderful work, and it doesn't seem fair. But I did hear not long ago somebody say that, uh, and it was in relation to Mardenhenge, which is another one of the vast henges within the Wiltshire complex, that nobody knows what happened 
or nobody has any idea what happened within these banks. But clearly it was for ceremonial purposes. <laughs> it's like, you can't have one without the other. It, it, it does. It drives me potty, frankly. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know. But uh, Cat's brain, um, anything uh, that they've unearthed from the interior, that from the interior, well, that tells us about how it looked and the dimensions, etc. Yeah, well, they've, uh, they have found that uh, it was it was certainly a, 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 well, I say certainly, it was probably a roofed timber hall. Um, so the, the everything that they've found style-wise so far implies that it was the same build as Neolithic, early Neolithic houses. Um, so hang about a minute. I, I, I mean, I don't know everything and I'm no academic, but I, the only time I can remember that um, a, uh, a barrow being described as having originally uh, having a timber structure mm. at its origin was Wayland Smithy. Mm. And do you know where I know that from? I said it. You said that in the film. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that's the only time, but, you know, I'm not... Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are others, but um, it's interesting. It, 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 no, it is interesting. Time, it is interesting. And I think that the trouble is that we, because so much of archaeology is, it's an interpretive science. And... So when when you have a site, because uh, I think Wayland Smithy, uh, I'm ashamed to say my memory should be better, but uh, but with everything that's recorded about it. So if I said that it was a timber structure, then I wouldn't have made that up. Um, I just don't remember where I researched that from <laughs> off the top of my head. Now the thing is, if you have a site that uh, that to all intents and purposes, imagine you've got a cardboard box and you find another cardboard box and another cardboard box. And and it's only with one of them that you find out how the actual leaves of it overlapped. Then it's not unreasonable yeah. to assume that with the others that all look the same, but they haven't got the flaps. It's not unreasonable to assume that they had overlapping flaps in the same way. Uh, it's It's that sort of interpretive deduction if that makes sense yeah yeah yes yes very much so but in the meantime not a lot else we can say probably about uh, the new long barrow and no brain. watch this space <laughs> uh, indeed <laughs> but the other thing i re re recall coming up recently is something about they've found where the architect architects of stonehenge hung out um, yeah, yeah. I, I I'm going to be rude again because when I when I read that article, I know I, I'm being unfair, but when I read that article, the first thing I thought because I do I have this knee jerk, grumpy old man uh, when anybody says something like that, it's like, well, why can't it have been where the caterers were? Because the caterers would have probably been far more <laughs> numerous and important on a daily basis than the architects. Um, but uh, but their other reason for saying that they think they might have found the uh, the place where the architects hung out was that there there was a correlation yeah. between the numbers of wooden pillars posts that they found post holes yeah. the numbers of post holes they seemed to relate to the numbers of stones 
uh, worked at Stonehenge. So it's possible that they were, uh, a, you know, they were doing a, a trial run with uh, with wooden posts to see if this worked and that worked. It is possible, but we will never know. Fair dues. You know, interestingly, also just, you know, it's, it's amazing what lurks at the back of one's brain. Um, but isn't there another um, um, monument or building or, or um, construction near Stonehenge? Actually, I think it's near, a, near a, uh, West Kennet. Um, that is called the sanctuary. Yeah. And didn't I have it that they had construed that this was the place of study? Yes. Of of learning, um, you know, to do with Stonehenge, where people came to learn how to be. Yes. A, uh, a Neolithic wise there, man or the, Bronze Age. The, the, the trouble is, as far as I can tell. There is absolutely not one shred of evidence to support any of these suppositions. I, I actually don't know where None. they come from. No. Um, yeah. And uh, you, you see, well, they come from people's brains. This is the thing. <laughs> you know, they come from mostly what well, they well, like things well, to be. Thing, you know, and I, I am. I, I call me boring. I am obsessed by uh, actually using evidence to lead you in a direction rather than just making something up. And uh, I mean, one yeah. of the more significant things, really, we, we know that they found uh, within the Wiltshire complex, we've got Durrington round the corner from Stonehenge. We've got Mardenhenge up the road. These are two vast, vast henges. And... Uh, you know, I mean, they they would have housed thousands of people. Now, what's particularly interesting about Durrington is that, uh, you know, the glory of, uh, of modern technology, that when they dug up all the animal remains, you know, this was where it seemed to be a massive feasting place, and they dug up all these remains. And so they could do isotope analysis on teeth and bones. And they found that loads of these animals had been driven down from Scotland. Yeah. Now, uh, <laughs> ooh, you know, that's exciting. Well, it blows, because, open, blows open huge questions and, um, you know, very it, interesting it, contexts just, for exercising the brain, doesn't it? Yeah, well, I, see, it, it could very much... Uh, well, it, it, OK, the two particular uh, possibilities. One is... That here you go, the Wiltshire complex is indeed the capital of uh, of megalithic Britain, and people come from all over the country to uh, you know to take part in. Even if it's the biggest market in the country, we don't know. We've got no idea. Maybe it was the biggest annual ceremony. Again, don't know. But whatever it was, people came from Scotland to be a part of it. Yeah. Now, there's the other possibility that this was just trading and people, the farmers in Scotland knew that maybe they'd get the best prices or sell the most uh, head of cattle or or swine, whatever it was, if they brought them down to Wiltshire. Mm. Now, how many days it would have taken to walk down? Not that many, you know, people walked large distances um, back then, but even so, you know, you're, you're talking about a, a, a couple of weeks to uh, yeah. to bring all your cattle. And that's that's a lot of effort to go to, unless you're pretty sure that you're either going to sell them all, or you're doing it for 
uh, a very good knees up. And certainly yeah. the amount of animal remains they found uh, at Durrington uh, does show quite clearly that this was this was a major party venue. Yeah, yeah. Well, there are all and sorts it, of You pictures. have to also laugh that, uh, you know, you look at... Um, uh, you you know rock and roll still very much a part of Wiltshire. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Doug. <laughs> yeah, some people will get the reference. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, but all sorts of pictures get conjured up in the mind. You know, immediately when we think about um, uh, cattle being driven long distances, that um, mm. we should think perhaps in terms of. Still, be, people being semi-nomadic, in, in which case it's not necessary. Even that, although it's quite a large, well, it, no, it is the largest. It is a large community thing. It's not necessary that it has to be occupied all the time wholly. It could be that's, uh, that's a good point. You know, a place that um, you know people came to from all over the country. But only at a particular mm. time, perhaps. Mm. No, yeah, I, and I don't, I don't know how point. you would in, yeah. begin to investigate that, how that would show up in the archaeology. But and so until that time, that's uh, yeah. a mere kind of speculation, I suppose. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so, do do you think we've sort of kind of redressed the balance a little bit there? Do you think we've done Stonehenge a little bit more justice now in our little? Op- I think we opening, have. Yeah. I mean, we could, we could go on and on and on if we wanted to really dig it all over. Mm, but, yeah, uh, well, but I, I, you know, I, I think we've redressed the balance a bit. Well, I hope, uh, uh, dear listeners, you you think we have too. So, with that, I think we will move on. Indeed. So that's the bulk of our first podcast over, but not before um, we come to the final bit where we'd like to wrap up. We've decided we'd like to wrap the program up and probably, well, no, certainly this will be an ongoing convention. I think that uh, we wrap the podcast up with a few lighter segments, um, beginning with... Um, some questions that may have come up over the last month or so, you know, through Facebook or Twitter or what have you, something that, um, you know, challenges uh, the grey matter. Have you got anything there then, Rupert? I think you have. I certainly have. I got a lovely question in from Mo Keown in Hertfordshire. And Mo, uh, well, I shall read it to you. She said, Rupert, can I ask your opinion on something? Reading about long barrows, it's said that the ancient people chose standing stones for barrows based on the patterns on the stones, i.e. that they resemble faces, etc. What's your view on that theory? Uh, now, she goes on to mention she'd, uh, she'd seen a lecture where somebody was seeing, uh, or they thought that the face uh, that, that there was a face on the stone in this uh. particular barrow, and she saw something quite different. So for her, it was a pure case of uh, 
uh, pareidolia, which uh, I knew there was a word for it. I knew there was a word. I know. know, You see, I have to say, Mo, I can't tell you how much we applaud you for using the word pareidolia. It doesn't get used anything like often enough. For for those of you that don't know, it's uh, it's the human condition where we do like to see patterns where they don't really belong. So a bit like the face on Mars and uh, that that sort of stuff, where we just uh, faces in the fire, that kind of thing. Um, now, I have to say, my attitude to uh, to figures in stones is, is no, I don't think so. I, I think that every now and again, uh, there's one where you, you can imagine there's a bunch of guys who are out looking for large lumps of rock to bring back to, uh, to use. And somebody might have said, oh, look, that one looks like a an aurochs maybe we'll have that one fair enough if it's a you know a manageable size stone but if you're actually out looking for a 40 ton lump of rock i don't think you're going to dismiss an absolute perfectly shaped rock because it hasn't got uncle bob's face on it um i i just don't really think it would have been a major factor at all I think you speak words of wisdom rupert soskin (laughs) steady yeah, well, do you, th- do you think that that's the question? Like, we can't really expand on that much more. I don't think I, so. I, don't I think the only thing of, of any merit to, to say is that every now and again, if you go back further, so well well before the Neolithic, if you go back into Paleolithic, particularly with cave paintings, that there were times when you could see that there was a shape in the rock that the artists were inspired to take as a as a base for, uh, you yeah. know, so they would start to paint an image around something that was already in the rock. So I do mm. think that that happened in caves and in, in cave art. I don't really think it happened in, uh, you know, the selection of, of of stones. Of course, listeners, if you want to argue with us, then please do feel free. Please do feel free. <laughs> but in the meantime, mm. thank you very much, Mo, for the uh, the, the question. Mm. And uh, this is, of course, uh, an invitation for anybody who uh, has a burning question they'd like to have answered in this section. Well, you know where we are and uh, how to contact us on Facebook or Twitter. Or Excellent. Instagram even, yeah. So we look forward to that. So that's for this moment, for this podcast, the uh, questions section over. Another regular section that we're going to have some fun with, I think, is the next one, which we're calling Stonehead of the Month. (laughs) This is a fun one. We all know one, don't we? Um, (laughs) Go on, Mark. I'm going to hand this one to yeah, you. Not in a pejorative <clears throat> way either. No, in know. a wonderful way. I mean, just it's it's, a, it's an honourable uh, position. It, it's an it honorable, is. In fact, it's something that yeah. I I think. Well, no, I, I I'll speak for both of us here. We both find it really. Uh, it's funny and it's exciting and it's something that we all share. This uh, this thing we do yeah, like yeah. to get out and look for stones in the middle of nowhere. So uh, this month, who have we got this month, Mike? <laughs> well, his name is Lee Price. Hello, Lee. 
Yeah, but but you you know more about uh, Lee than than I do. Um, <laughs> not that either of them has, uh, us have uh, spoken to. Though I I know who Lee is on uh, on Instagram, and I've seen lots of his wonderful photographs. Uh, well, Lee uh, Price thirty seven is his uh, moniker is on uh, uh, Instagram. Yeah, so uh, so that, that's a shout out there. So no, why why is Lee? Stonehead of the month. Lee is Stonehead of the month because, apart from the fact that he is, um, well, he's an obsessive Stonehead, but he loves standing with stones. He's a big fan of ours. He's watched it. Ah. He's watched it more times than is frankly reasonable. And I would say, Lee, you need to get out more. But apparently <laughs> he's out every weekend standing do. across Dartmoor. And you can see yeah. from his page on Instagram, go and have a look, Price37, as Michael said, and uh, just loads of photographs of, uh, of different places that, uh, uh, that he and his, uh, his partner uh, have visited. And uh, uh, it's, yes, happy to have you as our first Stonehead of the Month, Lee. Well done, that man. <laughs> Hooray! Congratulations, Lee Price, Stonehead of the Month. Final piece in this first podcast. Another regular item, we hope. A little piece of whimsy from the world of megalithomania. Um, (laughs) We've got got two bits of whimsy, really, in this. Two bits of whimsy. Well, there's one that I... This isn't even whimsy, it's actually appalling... But I had to put it in the whimsy section just because... Should we have an appalling section as well? <laughs> we probably should, because I'm sure yeah. we wouldn't have to work too hard to find some. We, may, we this... may massage the title of this section, you know, so that it includes the appalling well, and the most the, dreadful. The horrendous thing about this is that um, Gobekli Tepe, I mean, anybody... Uh, who is really into archaeology is enthralled by Gobekli Tepe. You know, it, it is the oldest known uh, site, particularly you know, of, of any megalithic structure. It is you know nine thousand years old on the megalithic side, and so obviously we've been trying to find out as much as we possibly can. And this hugely respected archaeologist, James uh, Mellart who died in 2012, turns out was an abject faker and spent years discovering, in inverted commas, uh, his own fakes, um, including inscriptions (laughs) and all sorts. And he was just making them all up and pretending that he'd found them. So there's an awful lot of stuff that we apply to uh, (laughs) sites like this that, no, sorry, load of nonsense. Load of nonsense. Oh, and there you God. go. So James Mellart and anything you read of his, take it with a very, very large pinch of salt. <laughs> oh, dear. I know. Why would you do I, that? Well, it's shocking, isn't it? I suppose, you know, it seems like a good idea at the time. And once you start, it's... Yes. Uh, yeah, no, no, shocking. Anyway. Sad but true. Sad but true. Okay, but there you go. moving but along. On, on a true no, whimsy is... side, and I, I absolutely love this. Um, yes. It... Because of all the uh, the archaeological diggings in Wiltshire, and you know, as we've been talking about, you know, so much stuff has been uncovered 
across, you know, right the way from, uh, well, what, however many miles in each direction from Stonehenge. And uh, they uncovered, at Lark Hill, they uncovered some First World War uh, trenches. Now, these were for, uh, what do you call it, manoeuvres when you're military practice and all the rest of it. Uh, manoeuvres. Yes, thank you. They were manoeuvres. <laughs> so training grounds for troops. And um, uh, and in amongst the uh, the trenches, <laughs> they found a uh, uh, an MG, a nine... <laughs> They dug up a 19, what was it, a K2 MG? Can you remember, Mike? What was the model car that that was? No, you got it. It's um, 1930s. They uncovered a red 1930s MG sports car. And uh, it had actually been buried in a gun emplacement. And nobody could understand, you know, how on earth did this happen? How had a gun got into a, a, a how had a gun? How had the car got into a gun emplacement? And when there's a big uh, an MG uh, an MG J two, there you go. That's any, the baby MG enthusiast um, uh, out there. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> and it was a big mystery, obviously, until uh, this man Patrick Shannon. Uh, uh, stuck his hand up and uh, and said, well, yeah, he was one of them. Uh, as a boy, he lived in the area in the 1960s <laughs> and Lark Hill was mostly tin huts then. They were still, you know, the remains of, uh, you know, of the uh, uh, military training grounds. And he and his gang, he was one of the younger lads in the gang, uh, but they used to play in this... Um, just abandoned uh, MG, and they used to uh, push it up the hill, all of them together, and then uh, get in it and, and roll down the hill and uh, and just have a laugh. And uh, and then apparently there was one day when some of the older boys decided that this hill wasn't anything like fun enough, so they all pushed it up a bigger hill and completely lost control and uh, and there's you know boys jumping out and falling out as this thing rocketed down the hill and ended up in the gun emplacement <laughs> where it stayed between them they could never haul it out again <laughs> and uh, and so the, the time came when the whole site was uh, was filled in and the car was never taken out it was just filled in with the car in in place so <laughs> pat shannon Good on you, mate. <laughs> yeah, great, great story. You see, archaeology, archaeology yeah. is not always about things that are thousands of years old. <laughs> archaeology rocks, mate. It does, mate. Yeah. Excellent. Which brings us to the very end of the first Standing With Stones podcast. Um, we hope uh, you've enjoyed it as much as we We hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed making it. Indeed. Mind you, thereby hangs a tail. Uh, <laughs> us and tech. But we've gotten there in the end. We've got there in the end. So, uh, one more thing before we go. Just uh, a reminder that um, thank you for you know being here and, and popping in and listening um, but a, a reminder, we'd love your support via Patreon, um, if you can. There are loads of wonderful perks and uh, rewards available, uh, depending on what kind of level uh, you choose to support us at. Um, 
ha- have a look. We'll, the link will be uh, down below, of course. These podcasts will remain free uh, for everyone, but behind the scenes and other stuff that we'll make, uh, that will only be available to uh, our contributing patrons. So, thank you again. Uh, and it's goodbye from... It's goodbye from me. <laughs> it's goodbye from him, and it's goodbye from me. Thanks See you next again. time. Bye-bye.